Thanks for tuning in. This edition of Outcasting will begin in a few moments. Outcasting is produced by Media for the Public Good, formerly WDFH Westchester Public Radio, non-commercial, non-profit, and volunteer-powered. One of the things that makes a show like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at mfpg.org and click on Support to make your tax-deductible contribution. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. And now, Outcasting. You know, I felt more accepted by my straight sports teams than I did within the LGBT teams. And that, for me, was a real eye-opening experience about just how much tension there is within the LGBT community regarding whether or not the T belongs. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported, independent producer based in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Nicole. On this edition of Outcasting, we continue our discussion of some of the issues faced by transgender people in sports. For most people, gender is a simple matter. They are girls, or boys, or women, or men. There's no conflict between the gender they feel they are and the biological sex of their bodies. But that's not true for everyone. Some people who are born into a girl's body feel themselves to be male, and some people born into a boy's body feel themselves to be female. Speaking very broadly, the word transgender has come into common usage to describe a wide range of people whose self-perceived gender does not match the sex of their bodies. Most of us have never needed a word to describe our gender identity. We just took it for granted. But just as the visibility of gay and bisexual people caused other people to start thinking of themselves as heterosexual or straight, the growing visibility of transgender people has brought us the word cisgender to describe people who are not transgender. Most of us, and most of you listening to this program, are probably cisgender. But on this edition of Outcasting, we're talking with Chris Mosier, an athlete who self-identifies as a transgender guy. Chris is a transgender advocate, educator, coach, and three-time Ironman triathlete. He's the founder of transathlete.com, a resource for athletes, coaches, and administrators to foster a community of inclusion. This is part three of a four-part series. In parts one and two, Chris talked about going through an identity change without anyone to guide him, making himself comfortable with his body and the effects of negative media coverage of trans athletes. At the end of part two, Chris was talking about transphobia he's experienced. Outcaster Travis now continues our conversation with Chris. Where do you think this discrimination comes from? Oh, it starts very early. Um, it's, it comes from our families. It comes from our media. It comes from just the way our society is set up. And in America, we have such gendered roles and expectations of people. What's the first thing that people ask when they find out someone is pregnant? Is it a is boy it, or a girl? Is it a boy or a girl? And then what do they do after they find out if it's a boy or a girl? They make decisions about what color will the baby's room be? Is it pink? Is it blue? Do we buy that baby dolls? Do we buy it trucks? Right? And so there are very strict gender expectations put in place on people from the womb, basically. And, you know, there are those expectations of 
Little girls don't run around in the backyard with their shirt off, even if it's 90 degrees outside. That That's not something that's appropriate for little girls to do. So, you know, I think it, it comes from so many sources. It's reinforced from so many forces. I don't know where it originally came from, but it's all around us all the time. And anyone who, who blurs or, or, you know, breaks out of that binary, it, people feel really threatened by that, it seems. Do you feel like the sports community that you're a part of is completely accepting and comfortable with you? You know, I felt more accepted by my straight sports leagues and teams than I did within the LGBT teams that I was that I was playing with. And that for me was a real eye-opening experience about just how much discrimination and tension there is within the LGBT community regarding, you know, whether or not the T belongs. And so that was a place where I expected them to have fully inclusive policies. I expected to be able to go to the gym that I was competing in and to have a restroom facility that I could change in and feel comfortable. And that really didn't happen. I expected folks not to misgender me when when speaking about me and not to make jokes using slurs but that was really not my experience within the lgbt space um, and i think part of it was that it seemed to me that some of them thought that they got a pass that because they were part of the lgbt community and they were just joking that it would be okay for them to say certain things to me and and i found it a real challenge to be in that space when competing and and training with my you know what i say straight i think they're totally inclusive of any identity and it's just not a space where we talk a lot about um, gender identity or sexual identity it's more of a social training club um, i happen to know that many of them are straight so i would call them my straight league by comparison they were fully on board like i said they you know did the work to educate themselves supported me as a teammate and i really think that they were careful about the language that they chose and about you know asking me the respectful questions and making sure that i felt like i was still part of the team do you consider yourself an activist i think that i'm more of an advocate in that you know to me being an activist is maybe a little more public than I am. And I realize I'm, you know, I share my story openly and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in a documentary, you know, I do radio shows like this, but I don't feel like I'm, I'm out there doing marches and things like that. And to me, like an activist role in, in my mind like that is a little more active in, uh, saying I'm here and I have a message and I want you to listen to me right now. Uh, whereas I'm just going to continue to do my work and hope that it impacts in certain ways and partner with people who, who can help move my visibility and my message forward about inclusion for trans athletes. But, um, I don't really like labels. <laughs> I would, I would call some of your education work activism, certainly. And I think being visible is, is enough to, to get the message out for people. The New York Times published an article about you in 2011. We've posted a link to the article on our website, outcastingmedia.org. 
It stated that you were about to compete in the New York City Triathlon for the first time as a man. Did you ever think you wouldn't be able to compete? Yeah, I definitely thought that I wouldn't be able to compete. And I think even up until this year, I had questions about whether or not I'd be able to compete in certain races. And at that time, I was just sort of an average age group athlete. And the race director basically gave me his blessing and said, this is just somebody who's out there to have fun and participate in a sport that they love. So go for it. And that was a really cool message to receive, you know, in such a large public way. But once I became more competitive, I needed to have that therapeutic use exemption form on file with USA Triathlon. And, you know, for the first couple of smaller races I did, I didn't have that on file. I knew that I couldn't compete as a woman, but had I been tested, you know, technically would have been doping by their standards, um, even though I, you know, didn't finish in the top 10, uh, you know, wasn't placing at that time. Um, as I've become a more experienced athlete and put in more hours of training and have gotten better, um, my results have, have been a lot better as well. So now that I've been winning races or placing in my age group, it was important for me to make sure that, that was on file, that I was legit to you know, able to compete. Um, that process, however, was really invasive, I felt. It required a lot of paperwork, uh, doctor's notification and notes, a uh, letter from my doctor stating my you know, medical history and uh, you know, hormone levels. And you know, it was basically 30, page, uh, 30 pages that I sent off about you know, everything of uh, sexual health and testosterone levels and blood counts and you know, all sorts of stuff. So uh, there was a time period while they were reviewing that that I wasn't able to compete. And I was waiting for that okay. So I got the okay now. And according to the Times article, John Korf, who owned the New York City Triathlon until 2013, said that he was in full support of your competing as a man that year. He disagreed with the myth that trans men gain a competitive advantage when transitioning from female to male. How did that affect you? You know, it was good and bad in some ways because it was it was kind of a, a slight, a little bit, of being like, um, you know, trans guys won't won't be competitive and you know that's sort of how i heard it but also he was acknowledging the fact that it wasn't like i was gonna take a shot of testosterone and then just smoke all the guys in my age group because i was doping right air quotes on doping so uh you know i i love that he was in full support of it and that he sort of busted that myth a little bit of you know well there's going to be an advantage and i think you know, as a trans guy, I don't really face that myth very often. I don't think a lot of people think that trans guys are going to be competitive in sports. I think what we really see is trans women experiencing a lot of that discrimination based on the idea that they would have a competitive advantage in their sports over women. Is it justified to think that trans athletes have an advantage if they're transitioning from male to female? No, I don't think that it is. And there's a, you know, a lot of policies in place about, depending on the sports league, about when a trans woman would be able to compete. 
and most of them are based on hormones and you know being on testosterone blockers for a certain number of years and there have been scientific studies that have shown uh, research has shown that trans women do not have an advantage over other women when when they are on estrogen estrogen is essentially a performance decreasing drug so the testosterone that would be left in their bodies would be at the same level or less than what a cisgender woman would have. So there, I think it's, a, it's not accurate to think that they would have an advantage. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, produced by Media for the Public Good in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. We're talking about the experience of trans athletes with Chris Mosier, a transgender advocate, educator, coach, and three-time Ironman triathlete. He is the founder of transathlete.com, a resource for athletes, coaches, and administrators to foster a community of inclusion. You mentioned that you had to provide all of this documentation to be able to compete, and was there a line that made you feel like your privacy was being invaded? I think it was that they wanted everything. And so they wanted to know surgery status and had I had any body modification surgeries. They wanted to see, um, you know, results of pap smears. Like they wanted, uh, you know, to see information like that, that I was really kind of like, why do you need to see all of this? Like I understand the testosterone levels, um, but I was just uncomfortable with some of that other you know, information going out. Leaving aside for now the question of people who identify in ways other than male or female, do you think that people who transition from female to male have different experiences in sports than people who transition from male to female? Absolutely. I think that male privilege is a very real thing. And I've experienced that in transitioning to be a male, to see how people treat me differently. And I think that sexism is a very real thing in sports. And so, you know, someone who is transitioning to be female is going to face not only transphobia, but also sexism that exists in the world. And so I think that their experience is very different and in many ways, I think would be probably more challenging than the experience that I've had. How do you feel about now identifying as a white male, which is sort of the, the top of the pyramid in terms of privilege. It was a shocking experience uh, to have that moment where I realized how real white male you know, perceived to be heterosexual privilege is in that nothing could have prepared me for that. And no one did prepare for me for that. That is not something that I that I saw in the YouTube videos. That is not something that I discussed with other trans people. It was just something I experienced. And the understanding of that experience sort of came uh, a little bit before, but after attending the Social Justice Training Institute, which is a five-day program that really dives into race and how how our dominant and subordinate identities impact us in the world. And having that experience of understanding that I have now become, you know, one of the, 
like the most privileged identity, um, you know, I left that experience and saw everything in a whole new light, right? Like, you know, walking into a corner store and, and I would be greeted before someone who walked in right before me if she was a woman or um, a person of color, right? So that there are all of these really subtle um, but very real things that happen and advantages that I gain in being perceived as a straight white male. Was it this five-day experience that made you realize you were such a you were in the privileged group or was it a moment in regular life there were a lot of moments leading up to that and i'd been thinking a lot about how my shifting identity um caused me to it didn't ca- actually it didn't cause me to interact with people in a different way because i always felt the same way inside it was just my outside appearance that sort of changed for folks and not even that drastically because i always dress the same way that I dress now. Uh, but it was more how people read me and perceived me um, that changed. And so it wasn't that I felt that I was interacting with people differently, but I noticed that folks were interacting with me very differently once I started to be perceived as male all the time. Do you have an example? Anything that comes off to the top of your head? No. Okay. No problem. <laughs> um, sort of all, I mean, all of life. And and so there were a lot of experiences that were very subtle that made me think that I wanted to attend Social Justice Training Institute to get a better understanding of what that actually was. Was there anything in the Social Justice Training Institute about checking your privilege? Oh, Absolutely. And I think for me as a white person, it was one of the first times that I actually sat down with a group of white people and talked about what it was like to be white and talk about my privilege as a white person. And that's something that most white people don't do. And it was incredibly challenging to do that because I, again, felt like I didn't have the words for it. I had never been forced to think about my race in that way. And just understanding that I've never been forced to talk about my race or explain myself based on my race or um, defend myself based on my race, just understanding that was such a huge check of privilege. Talk a bit about your website, transathlete.com and the impetus behind its creation. When I was researching coming out and being an athlete and trying to figure out ways that I could maintain my identity as an athlete but still be competitive, I really wasn't finding a lot of resources out there that clearly stated what the policies were for trans athletes. And there were various bodies of research and a couple of folks who do really great work around trans athletes, particularly at the college level. But I wasn't seeing a place where I could go to to figure out what you know, what would I have to do to be able to com- to compete, to continue to compete. So sort of as a result of that, I decided to make the website in November 2013 as a place where all of this information could just be housed as a central hub so that hopefully other athletes or coaches who have trans players or people who just want to be 
progressive and inclusive on their teams could go to this site, see what other policies are out there, and start to implement change in their own areas. The site includes descriptions of various policies regarding trans athletes around the world. What can trans people do if they see they don't have protections in their geographic area or in sports organizations in which they participate? Well, they could always contact me and I could help them through that process. And that's one thing that I put out on my website is that I love contributions to the site, but I've also served as a resource now to athletes and coaches and sports leagues to help them kind of craft their policies and to take a critical look at the policies that they have in place and see if they truly are inclusive. Another thing that they can do is be their own advocate. And that's a more challenging thing to do because it really takes a strong person to put themselves out there to be the one person creating this sort of change. And that was a position that I sort of found myself in in various leagues and organizations when I first came out. And I think it it takes a lot out of you to do that, or it took a lot out of me to do that. So that's one approach. Um, And the other is getting allies to jump on board and help push inclusive efforts forward. You list five points for trans allies to remember. We've provided a link to them on our website, outcastingmedia.org, but can you briefly describe them? The first point is respect. Allies should respect transgender people's names and their pronouns. The second is confidentiality. Protecting the privacy of a transgender athlete should be a top priority for any athletic department or affiliated school or organization and someone's trans status should be kept as a need-to-know basis. So in some cases, athletes are out, and in other cases, they're not out, but they need to out themselves in order to participate in sports. So folks should remember to keep that information confidential. The third point is support. Allies should listen and be supportive. Allow trans people to tell you who they are and then respect them for that. The fourth point is that every journey is different. Some trans people use hormones, some do not. Some choose to have surgery, others don't. So it's important to remember that every trans person's individual experience is different, and we can't really generalize what the trans experience is like. And the fifth point is to educate yourself. Trans allies should challenge themselves on their own notions of gender roles and expectations use inclusive language, and continue their education on trans topics. They need to educate themselves and not just rely on trans people in their lives to do all of the teaching for them. We've been talking with Chris Mosier, a transgender athlete. Thanks so much for joining us, Chris. Thanks for having me. Chris Mosier is featured in a film called Just Gender, which looks at the realities of transgender lives. Let's listen to a short excerpt. Today, there is a greater ability for the transgender community to connect and both provide and receive support. Harvey Milk had it correct. Harvey Milk said for every, he believed that everybody should come out of the closet. And he was primarily talking about gay and lesbian people, but we need the same call right now for trans people. We've hidden in the shadows for safety. We need to stop hiding in the shadows and it's gonna take that putting our bodies on the line. And that's, I'm not, what I'm saying is not easy. People come down to Fantasia Fair and many of them 
are first-timers. We've had gals and boys uh, uh, who have come down here who have never gone outside on the street in women's clothes. And they're terrified. And we say, it's okay. You can do that here. You can watch some of these folks um, that have been coming for the last few years and see the changes in their lives. Some of them have been very bitter about life and then they start their transition and they become happy. And that's all that really matters is if they are happy with themselves. We know we save lives every day, uh, especially Parents tell us this, they felt like a lifeboat had been rolled up to their sinking ship because they felt like they were all alone. We begin to see some of these children who come in very quiet, very reserved, and it's been neat to see them blossom and come alive. And we have saw people who drove around the building six or seven times before they finally walked in presenting as their preferred gender, and for them to find us greeting them at the door, calling them by the name that they're presenting, Ma'am, can I help you? Sir, can I help you? And all of a sudden they realize they're in a safe place that values them for who they are and accepts them for what they were destined to be. I definitely felt that I was the only person in Arkansas who was transgender. <laughs> um, I was amazed actually um, to find out that there's so many people in Arkansas that have felt the same way and just didn't have any place to go or, you know, anyone to talk to. I would say that, you know, I'm humbled by how many people have walked through the doors and how many people keep coming back once they've come in the room. And it's, it's a family. I mean, those are my closest friends and they are indeed my backbone. And I'm, I'm just happy and thankful now that I can be the backbone to someone else. While there are many miles to go, the broader society in the United States is moving towards greater support of basic rights for the transgender community. Nationally, um, the passage of the Hate Crimes Act in Washington, D.C. was a, a tremendous mile marker for us. It was the first federal legislation that actually acknowledged um, gender identity and expression and sexual orientation as well um, as federally protected classes. We passed a very strong anti-bullying bill and it included sexual orientation and gender identity. And we became the only, the 11th state in the country to have a bill that includes specifically those categories. It passed in the Senate unanimously and it passed in the House by about three quarters vote. We've been listening to a short excerpt from the film, Just Gender, which looks at the realities of transgender lives. It is aimed at schools and corporate diversity programs among other audiences. The film is available through Kino Lorber Films. This has been part three of a four-part discussion with triathlete Chris Mosier on the issues that transgender people face in sports. You can listen to the series on our website, outcastingmedia.org. On the next edition of Outcasting, we continue our discussion with Chris Mosier as he talks about how he is working to bring about change, gives advice to trans athletes, and speaks about what being trans means to him. That's it for this edition of Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Nicole S., Sydney, Josh, David, Travis, Andrew, Michael, 
Jamie, Karen, Marco, Joe, and me, Nicole. Our executive producer is Mark Sofis. If you are having trouble, whether it's at home or at school, or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386, or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you do not want to talk on the phone. Again, the number is 866-488-7386. Being different is not a reason to hate or hurt yourself. All right, go get a piece of paper. I'll say it one more time. 866-488-7386 or online at thetrevorproject.org. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting LGBTQ Resources. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York. More information about Outcasting is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting episodes, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram at Outcasting Media. I'm Nicole. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for Part 4. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make a tax-deductible gift to Media for the Public Good. We can't do programs like this without your support. Visit mfpg.org and click on Support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.